All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. How's everyone doing? I took the front end of November off to gather some research, decompress from the true crime, give the vocals a little resty-poo, handle some side quests, and high key enjoy the autumnal color changes. The leaves were these amazingly spectacular shades of like goldenrod, rust, and cranberry here in anywhere USA. It's definitely one of my favorite times of year for sure. I hope autumn is going well for you as we transition into the holiday season. <clears throat> We got Fox Day, <laughs> those of you who observe. Happy 246th birthday to my brothers and sisters in the United States Marine Corps, Semper Fi. Happy Veterans Day to all. Thanksgiving is on Thursday here in the U.S. So to all of you who observe, uh, you know, happy Turkey Day. Um, and I also hope the rest of you have, like, a really good one, like, when you, if you don't observe Turkey Day, like, it's okay. Thank you all for lending me your ears. I know that you could be listening to anyone, and I am grateful you chose to, like, listen to me, you guys. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Hold your applause. This is your shout-out time. Big hey to the listeners in the Los Angeles, Concord, and Sacramento, California. What it do, Atlanta, Savannah, and Waynesboro, Georgia. Hey, 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 Ashburn, Manassas, Hampton, and Arlington, Virginia. I see you, Denver, Commerce City, and Thornton, Colorado. Good day, New South Wales and Queensland, Australia listeners. I hope you are well, eh, Alberta, British Columbia, and Manitoba listeners. Hello, Wales. Geoguit, uh, Connaught, uh, and Munster, Ireland listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all your likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened, a true crime podcast Facebook group where I share true crime stories, memes, and updates, as well as the What Had Happened YouTube channel, website, IG, and Twitter. Jeez Louise, it's growing, but that's because the listenership is growing, and that's amazing. I thank you all for that. I thank you all for the ability to do so. You can also email me lesser true crime story cases that you'd be, like, into hearing, um, or whatever. Say, say hey, like, long-time listener, first-time emailer, or what have you. Uh, all of the What Had Happened associated links can be found below in the description box, along with my references per the usual. Last episode, I discussed four stories of parasite to wrap up my spooky-ass October uh, presentation of true crime stories and parasite eek, right? Today's episode is going to be another compilation, this one focusing on a few senseless murders that have occurred within the music world. Because, side quest, sidebar, I love music. <clears throat> like, I do. I've, I've covered mayhem, and I divulge to you that I'm a metalhead. 
I'm sure here and there I've divulged that I love other genres of music. I love music. If you look back on the yearbooks and pictures of me in anywhere USA from probably literally like three years old and up, there's always been some kind of like headphones, Walkman, record player, something with me. And that's just how I roll. I love listening to music. It's what I do. Uh, People think I might be rudish because I don't hear shit around me. Um, Because I'm always listening to music. Which isn't safe. So, like, don't be like Kimberly in that regard. Because you got to be aware of what's going on. Situational awareness. If you paid attention to the video that I dropped in the What Had Happened Facebook page today, you'd know what I was talking about. Anywho, today's episode is going to be, like I said, another compilation focusing on murders that occurred within the music world. The world got much quieter when the music was stopped abruptly for some of the most prolific orators and poets of our time. From John Lennon and Marvin Gaye to Biggie and Tupac, unfortunately, there are quite a few more musicians who have been murdered or committed murders, even as recently as this week this past week with the murder of 36-year-old rapper Young Dolph out in Tennessee in front of a cookie establishment. Um, that's bullshit. Can't fucking buy delectable baked goods without getting got. That's some... Pardon my French already. <clears throat> that's some fuck shit. Today I'll be focusing on what had happened when the mics were cut permanently. Our first story is about the day the king of Western Swing, Spade Cooley, lost his cool and murdered his second wife, Ella Mae Evans. Let me take a sip of this coffee because this shit is hot. This story, like, literally the dumpster juice alert is, like, right next to me. So hold on, sip, sip, sip. All right. Donnell Clyde Cooley was born on December 17, 1910 in Grand, Oklahoma. Being a quarter Cherokee, as a boy, he was sent to the Chemawa Indian School in Salem, Oregon during the, quote, assimilationist American Indian boarding school era of forced separation of Native American children from their families, communities, traditions, and beliefs. (sighs) My grandfather, not like my great-grandfather, but like my dad's dad was born in 1904 in North Carolina, and he was Native American, and it was not very live, laugh, love, so having to read that aloud is kind of like, mm. So, in his youth, Donnell got his nickname Spade after drawing three consecutive hands of spades, one a straight flush during a poker streak. In 1930, Spade, his high school sweetheart, bride, and their son relocated from Oklahoma to California. Spade, an impressive fiddler, joined a big band led by Jimmy Wakely, where they performed at the Venice Pier Ballroom in Venice, California. After Jimmy went under contract with Universal Pictures, Spade replaced Jimmy as band leader. 
Spade hired sultry baritone Tex Williams, making the 18-month residency at the Venice Pier Ballroom a record-breaker for the early 1940s. Spade appeared in almost 40 westerns throughout his time. He also had his own television show at some point, you guys. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay. His violent drinking and philandering became an added layer to his already complex life. Spade would get into physical altercations with bandmates and his wife, only to have forgotten about them like the next day or once he dried out. This was something most grew accustomed to, especially his wife. Spade would leave and stay away only to return with his tail between his legs once he got everything out of his system. Around 1942, Spade became infatuated with 17-year-old aspiring singer Ella Mae Evans. The blonde beauty, who was 15 years younger than Spade, became what he wanted to covet. In 1945, following the divorce from his first wife, Spade and Ella were wed. Ensuring he'd put an end to her fledgling musical career, he got Ella pregnant. The following year, before the birth of their daughter, Melody, Ella learned that Spade was having an affair and attempted to leave him. When Ella ran off to Texas, Spade brought her back to California. Spade moved Ella and the baby out to his sprawling ranch in the Mojave Desert while he himself spent most of his time away at his home in Los Angeles. You know, because he had, like, the television show and he was a band leader. Venice, you know, like, he was doing shit. You know what I mean? But y'all gotta get your asses away from where I do what I do. I see where the logic was at, you son of a bitch. In 1948, Donnell Jr. was born. As the 40s moved into the 50s, Western Swing began to lose its popularity as rock and roll began to take off. So, I listened to some Western Swing. So, literally, I listened to some Roy Rogers, some Spade Cooley, and some Tex Williams to, you know, make sure that Western Swing was what I thought it was. And, you know, I was not disappointed. And I would say that um, they were really fucking gangster. Bar spittage. Yes. Shots fired, literally. Like, the words that were coming out of their mouths in some of the songs. Ugh. Rapper's delight to me. Mm. Anywho. So rock and roll started to, like, take off and stuff. And Western Swing began to lose its luster. And with his big band career cooling off, the abuse got worse. Spade moved the family, who had now been residing in the mansion on Ventura, or, yeah, back to the ranch in the desert. Money wasn't an issue, because Spade had $15 million in the bank from his decades-long career. Insecurity, jealousy, and alcoholic rage created a toxic atmosphere in Mojave. Some of these insecurities and jealousy were legitimate. I mean, like, on both sides of the house, to be perfectly honest, because what's good for the goose is good for the gander in the Cooley household. So, because Spade... Well, I mean, you know, you also lose them how you get them, in some regards. So, Spade was cheating on his first wife, 
and that's how he pulled Ella. And then after he got with Ella, he was still cheating, so he cheats on her. She gets frustrated, she gets pissed, so she starts getting her some, you know, stuffy stuff on the side. She started getting some strange. Okay, girl, I see you. But Space are getting pissy, because, like, nobody else can have what's his. That's just, like, literally the vibe, okay? So just roll with me. Hope you guys don't mind that I say vibe a lot because I'm a Pisces and I go off vibes. Hmm, bite me. Anyways, so it was like a toxic atmosphere. February 1960, Spade was honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Yay! The following year, Ella was admitted, though, into hospital under extreme strain. She told the doctors repeatedly that she was in fear of her husband. Ella told doctors that her husband accused her of having affairs with men, women, and his former boss, Roy Rogers. Allegedly... Ella admitted to having these affairs, just as her husband Spade had been carrying on extramarital affairs throughout their marriage. While in hospital, Ella retained legal representation and began the process of filing for divorce. Ella stated that she'd been living in fear of her life because of the physical abuse that she had endured throughout her marriage. Spade responded to the filing by intimidating and continuing to abuse Ella. Ella was a prisoner on the ranch in Mojave when Spade filed for divorce on March 17th, stating that Ella had, quote, abandoned him and, like, left him brokenhearted, citing irreconcilable differences. What a dumbass. Spade had become a lunatic. He systematically removed all ways of contact by removing the insides of the telephone receiver so Ella couldn't make or receive calls. While under duress, Spade made Ella sign four deeds that, you know, they had shared joint property, giving him sole ownership. He made her confess to having multiple affairs to her friend's family and the couple's 14-year-old daughter, Melody, who had to sit by and watch her dad fucking her mom up. Okay, so, like, I guess now would be a good time to introduce the... Okay. (sighs) Okay, so, Spade went completely off his axis on April 3rd, 1961. Trigger alert, like, pull over, turn, put ear kids' headphones, earmuffs, okay? Like, don't, please do not be prepping the fucking turkey in front of the kids while you're listening to this episode. Because now shit's about to go really badly okay so just right now already just off the bat dumpster juice alert you've been warned sorry kids i don't make this shit up i just report it at about six in the evening he savagely beat ella beginning in the living room where he knocked her down then dragged her into the bedroom where he continued to beat her pulling out chunks of her hair choking and stomping her. Ella's blood covering him, the walls and floors. He didn't stop. Spade took a broom handle and sodomized and vaginally raped her with it. At about this time, Melody came home, and Spade instructed her to follow him, saying, quote, come here, I want you to see your mother. Spade led Melody through to the master bedroom and 
At first, Melody said that she couldn't see Mom, and so Spade walked in further, walked into the bathroom, where Ella lay in a bloody heap. Spade dragged the nude, abused Ella into the bedroom and slammed her head on the floor twice. Spade then told his daughter, quote, Melody, I'll give you three minutes to get her up off the floor, or I'll kill her if you don't get her up. Spade left the room and began counting down. One minute. One minute and a half. Ella remained limp on the floor. Time's up, Melody, Spade shouted as he entered the room with a rifle at his side. All right, Melody, you're going to watch me kill her, he exclaimed as he kicked Ella in the abdomen. We'll just see if you're really dead, Spade said as he burned her nipples with a lit cigarette. Upon his arrest for the murder of his 36-year-old wife, 54-year-old Spade pled innocent by reason of insanity. While awaiting trial, Spade had a heart attack, placing him in the hospital for days. When the trial against Spade began on July 10, 1961, the courthouse was filled with spectators and reporters chomping at the bit to hear every salacious detail of the marriage and murder of Ella May, including testimony about the numerous affairs Spade alleged his wife had, had including the liaison with Roy Rogers. On July 27th, Melody took the stand weeping openly as she recounted the events that unfolded when she entered her home that spring evening. During the recess, following Melody's testimony, Spade became overcome with emotion, saying repeatedly, quote, wasn't she beautiful? And then his lit cigarette slipped from his mouth. Spade had suffered another heart attack. Tests would show that Spade had no heart damage and was brought back to his cell. After six weeks of testimony and deliberations, 19 hours in the jury room, on August 19th, the jurors found Spade Cooley guilty for the murder of his wife, Ella Mae Evans. Spared the death penalty, Spade was sentenced to life in prison. While incarcerated, Spade was treated to, like, he was treated for depression and heart issues, he was also given preferential treatment, allowing him to continue playing his fiddle, and, like, you know, like, they were basically treating him like, do you remember the scene in Goodfellas when everybody is locked up, and yet they're eating, like, kings, and they run the facility that they're in? Okay. As I channeled Drita DeVanzo from Mob Wives. Okay, so you know how they were, you know how they, how they were? That's how Spade was basically treated, like, a demigod or some shit. Anyways, I really need to take a sip of this coffee. Sorry, guys. Allergy season. In 1968, Spade was unanimously paroled for February 22nd, 1970. November 1969, Spade was given a 72-hour furlough to perform a concert for the Deputy Sheriff's Association of Alameda County at the Oakland Auditorium. On November 29th, Spade took the stage in front of a crowd of 2,800 people. 
After giving a riveting performance, dare I say, probably, like, the fucking performance of his life. Like, he played that fiddle. Like, that was it. Because, yeah. Spade stepped backstage where he first complained of difficulty breathing. The 58-year-old's fiddle dropped to the floor and he followed. Spade Cooley had died of a heart attack three months before his parole. By the way, that was also, like, gonna be granted by, like, then-Governor Ronnie Reagan. He had had a hand in that. So, that was our first of six cases. Take another sippy sip. Can you hear it? Ooh, it's so gross. Allergy season. Yucky poos. Hate yous. So, our second case is a curious one that is tragic and unresolved. I did a poll. I asked a few people if they felt as if this particular true crime, or if this particular story would be classified as a true crime, and we all agreed that it was. So, let's get into it. I'm going to preface this. I'm not going to villainize Nancy Spungen. She's been the punk equivalent to Yoko Ono throughout pop culture and the chapters in history in which she was a part of. We as a society have a tendency to allow the optics that frame a person to drive our judgments and criticisms. And I'm here today to say not today, not after all of the material I went through to get my information. Nope, not after Britney Spears got freed. Not after we survived 2007 watching Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, and Britney Spears, and other people burn out only to resurrect themselves like phoenixes. Not after we made it through Robert Downey, motherfucking damn junior. Love you. Rob Lowe. Okay? Okay? We've, we've, Okay, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna let, I'm not gonna let people villainize her the way that we villainize Yoko Ono. She broke up the band. Nope. Because it's how the optics are framed. The optics are framed to make you like or dislike someone. Okay? And if there's anything that is slightly peculiar or not considered like up to snuff with what society deems traditionally acceptable then you get a bad fucking name and a bad rep so i am old enough to see that and acknowledge that i used to be a lemming who you know was like oh shit if it was reported and so on and so forth no 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 no, no. i'm not gonna let that be you guys can make your own judgments about this woman i'm not gonna be the one to bash her okay huh So now that that rant's over real quick, let's get into what had happened in room 100 at the Chelsea to Nancy. Nancy Alara Spungen was born February 27th, 1958 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Deborah, Nancy's mother, said that from the day Nancy was born, there were medical complications and issues with her daughter. Nancy was born with cyanosis, 
which is a bluish gray hue to a person's complexion, normally due to a lack of oxygen, and most importantly, she almost died due to oxygen deprivation as her umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck during her delivery. Eight days following her birth, the baby was released from the hospital and sent home with her mother and father. So babies cry, we know this, but Nancy wailed, as her mother Deborah would say, for hours on end in what was described as agony. Day in and day out, the tiny babe screamed her fucking head off. Nancy's father was a traveling salesman, and her mother would later own an organic food store, as well as become an author. She wrote a book about her daughter. I did not read it, so I'm not going to be using, I'm not going to be throwing that into the references, but there is audio, there's an audio um, interview with her on YouTube that I did listen to. And it's informative because I was able to learn some things about the background of Nancy. The Spongens raised Nancy and her siblings in a comfortable middle-class Jewish home. As Nancy got older, her fits and screams turned into fits and tantrums. At three months old, Nancy was prescribed liquid barbiturates by a pediatrician, but to no avail dumpster juice. Okay. I understand that this was the 50s, so we know better now, but, and I'm also not a doctor or a professional of anything, but I can say that to have your baby on barbiturates at, yeah, basically out the bat cave, you were setting, she was set up for failure. Okay, so growing up, Nancy detested her sister Susan, but bonded with her baby brother David. Although a brilliant student who excelled academically in elementary school, Nancy had very few friends. As she got older, her outbursts persisted. Once attempting to stab a a babysitter with scissors, and another time attempting to beat a psychiatrist, who accused her of acting out for attention. Okay, and that psychiatrist is probably long deceased, but that's bullshit. Okay? Especially when the kid has had problems from the jump. At the age of 11, Nancy was expelled from school after ditching for like two weeks. Crestfallen, Deborah and Frank enrolled their troubled daughter at Devereux Glenholm School in Connecticut, and then at the Devereux Manor High School in Pennsylvania. These boarding schools were touted as being therapeutic, independent co-educational institutions that focus on special educational needs. In January 1972, Nancy ran away from Devereux Manor and attempted suicide. At the age of 15, Nancy was diagnosed with schizophrenia. No fucking shit. <sighs> in April 1974, 16-year-old Nancy graduated from Lakeside High School. Two weeks before graduation, the 16-year-old received her acceptance letter to attend the University of Colorado at Boulder. She began attending, but five months into her freshman year, she was arrested for buying marijuana from an undercover police officer. 
After it was discovered that Nancy was storing stolen property in her dorm room, she was expelled by the university. Nancy's shamed father, I know he was shamed, traveled from Philadelphia to Boulder to collect his daughter, who, after accepting a plea deal, was banished for life from the state of Colorado. Motherfucking gangster shit right there, bros. And broheads. Woo! After being 86 from Colorado, Nancy returned home only to strike out on her own again at 17. Nancy left home and began prostituting herself in New York to support herself. Super young and mentally, like, all over the place, it makes sense that Nancy also became a groupie following uh, popular acts like Aerosmith, Bad Company, the New York Dolls, and the Ramones. Now, Nancy was always telling people she was going to go to London, and lo and behold, in 1977, she did just that. Nancy moved to London and began hitting the punk scene. Ah, that word that I dislike oh so immensely. It wasn't long before Nancy was introduced to Simon John Ritchie, better known as Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious. Quick background on Simon. Sid was born May 10th, 1957 in London, England. Mom Anne was a school dropout due to lack of academic success, which led her to join the British Army, where she met her future husband, John Ritchie. Shortly after the birth of their son, Simon, Anne relocated with her baby to Ibiza. That sounds so fucking hot, but it probably really wasn't, unless you're talking temperature. With the understanding that John was going to reunite with his wife and son. But after the checks failed to come, you know, for like the first couple of months or so, Anne realized that she and her baby had been abandoned. Also, dumpster, dumpster, dumpster juice alert, dumpster, dumpster, dumpster juice alert. As a toddler, she used Simon to smuggle hash from Spain to the UK. By 1965, Anne remained a man named, remarried a man named Christopher Beverly. Anne and Simon moved to Kent, but six months later, Christopher was dead of kidney failure. Now, chef, don't judge because, you know, I understand that, you know, some people have drug addictions. However, Chef is judging the fuck out of Anne Beverly. Because Anne Beverly was into hard drugs, particularly heroin and opiates, and gave zero fucks. As a birthday present one year, she gave her teenage son heroin. Happy birthday, son. Chase the dragon with me. It's not cool. Well, come with mom to hell. Uh-uh. That's fucking disgusting. So, it's 1973, and Sid is friends with John Lydon, who you may know as Johnny Rotten. And he's beginning to develop a name for himself. You know, John Lydon is beginning to develop himself a name for himself within the punk scene. Uh, he describes... Well, it was described as this. Sid basically groupied his way into the band. 
he was just always there. Finally, in 1976, Sid is the bassist for the Sex Pistols. In 1977, Sid meets chum Johnny Thunder's American friend, Nancy Spungen, who has recently moved to London. It's been alleged that Nancy introduced Sid to heroin and was the cause of his downward spiral, but as I just told you, we know that that's not true. Now, each had their own individual relationships with hard substances each uh, that each were introduced to at different phases and places in their lives, and it was their shared need to kill pain and self-destruct that kept them together for, you know, approximately 19 months. In this codependent us-versus-them world they created together. So, Nancy was a Pisces like me, so she was... Okay, so she was a social butterfly, but she was like an awkward social butterfly. She was more like a social moth. Where we embrace the butterfly who can flutter amongst the room and go from click to click to click. Like, that's always been my modus operandi. She was really loud and quote-unquote... Okay, so brash. I'm going to use some more sophisticated, classy terms, okay? Because I don't want to call her the things that they called her. But her voice was abrasive. Her accent was different. She was trying to be that butterfly but it didn't translate especially like within the circles that she was in and also because of the you know the lifestyle that she was living (sighs) so there's that okay whereas Simon was more quiet and aloof and so the two balanced each other she could be his mouthpiece and you know she could be his caregiver she could try to nurture him in the way that we Pisces tend to do um when we fall in love we fall in love hard so and fast so I'm not surprised that the two of them were wrapped up into each other I mean frankly who the fuck wants to be alone so I mean I don't shun the two of them for wanting to be together and then you you know again you add the the drugs to the equation and that's a you know fucking perfect storm right there so after the sex pistols broke up in january 1978 the pair moved to new york to work on Sid's solo career they moved into room 100 at the hotel chelsea aka the chelsea registered as mr and mrs simon john ritchie While residing at the Chelsea, the couple fell deeper into their drug abuse. So, fuck what you've seen in the movie, said Nancy. Like, yeah, I guess some of, there is some accuracy to that. But, I've described in past episodes how fucking disgusting New York was at at this time in history. For those of you who have, like, no working knowledge... The Chelsea, despite its beautiful name and history of illustrious patrons, was an anal war on society. Drug dealers, deals, prostitution, murder, overall, just fucking gross shit happened there at all times, and Nancy and Simon were in the thick of it. 
from the mental illness, addiction, readily available drugs, and thousands of dollars the couple kept around daily, the perfect storm was brewing in room 100. With the schizophrenia and addiction also came the issues with self-harm and violence. Nancy was known to cut on herself in a cavalier manner, similarly to Dead of Mayhem, and the couple allegedly had a death pact. Uh, Their fights and breakups were just as tumultuous as their makeups. The couple saw things in one another that nobody else could ever understand, and their bond was intensely solid, despite the dramatics of their day-to-day life. So... On October 11th, 1978, Sid swallowed approximately 30 two-in-all tablets, which are a super strong barbiturate. I discussed these when talking about Harrison Graham. Having ingested that many tablets and whatever other drugs he'd done that evening, Sid was literally... Sorry, guys, I watched the Roblo roast last night while I was working on this. He was comatose throughout the night as people, a few being drug dealers, and all of the people being, like, less than savory, came and went from room 100. At about 11 a.m. on October 12th, the bellman of the hotel responds to distress in room 100. Sid is seen in a drugged haze wailing in the hallway that he killed her inside of the tiny bathroom of the couple's room nancy clad in just her underwear was found bleeding profusely from a knife wound to her abdomen when arrested sid first admitted to murdering nancy but then recanted his statement after sobering up saying he couldn't remember the incident or anything else from the evening before. Sidebar! Sid owned a hunting knife, however, the size of the blade was different from that of the size of the blade wound that Nancy was stabbed with. (sighs) While freed on bail, a few days later, Sid attempted suicide. He was said to have, like, wailed and cried for his Nancy completely inconsolable over the loss of his love and completely perplexed over what had happened. Sid assumed he had stabbed Nancy but couldn't remember doing so. Like, I mean, he hypothesized the death pact that he'd had with her or maybe there was a fight or, you know, she forced him to do it. But After two months on Rikers Island, while awaiting the trial of Nancy's murder, Sid was released. I'm going to take another sip. His now girlfriend, model, actress, and punk groupie, Michelle Robinson, and his dumpster juice mother, Anne, threw a small welcome welcome home celebration for Sid. Now, I'm only calling Anne dumpster juice because, listen... Michelle was the girlfriend, from what I gathered in what little bit of information that exists on what had happened that night, she may have been doing drugs, but she was not about that heroin life or shooting up life, so I'm not gonna, like, fault her for all of this shit, but anyways, they threw him a small welcome home celebration. 
That night, his mother, though, like, after... Okay, so if a guy rolls up, and he's got some super pure shit. And Sid's like, I need a bump, I need a bump, I need a bump. And he'd gone to one group of people, and they had told him no. And then he is still complaining about needing, you know, fixes. So this guy comes in and he's got stuff. And so he gives Sid just enough to chill him the fuck out. And against his better judgment, he left some more with Anne. So, after everyone has left for the evening, keep in mind, this is some super powerfully pure shit that came from, like, Asia. Um, or something like that. Uh, he, uh, is in bed with Michelle, and it's, like, wee hours of the morning, and he can't go to sleep. He's probably got the sweats, he's got the chills, he's got the aches, the creepy crawlies, you know, he's unwell, right? And he's begging, 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 begging for another hit. And so finally, Michelle gets up and goes and wakes up Anne. And she's like, Anne sits calling for you. He says he needs another hit. So, Anne, being, first of all, she knew that the shit was heavy, and the dealer told her, wait until, like, tomorrow morning to give it to him. She, 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 she was given instructions, like, wait until he, like, wakes up from all of this shit, like, in the morning or whatever, and then give him some more, but don't give him any more tonight because this shit is super powerful. So, she got the disclaimer, and against better judgment she being a heavy substance abuser she she knew I think she knew what the fuck she was doing she was putting her son out of his goddamn misery that doesn't make it right it makes it hella wrong to be perfectly honest with you but she fixed him a lethal dose and then she walked into the bedroom and she shot her son up and you know She administered a deadly dose of heroin in her son's veins. (sighs) Finally, Sid was released of the demons that plagued him, and he died. So, I included Nancy's story because there are more unanswered questions than answers. Going off of Sid's admission from face value, without taking in the events of the evening before, the people who were in and out of the room... And the fact that the admission of guilt was most likely just assumed by Sid because he woke up to find her dead in the bathroom. And while still coming down from such a powerful high, he was confused. Yes, he was covered in blood because he fucking leaned down to touch her. Okay? There's that. Um... There was a large amount of money that was kept in the room, and people knew this. Nancy obviously had been awake while Sid was comatose. And so there's no telling 
who she may have, you know, encountered, who may have tried to rob them, who may have tried to set them up, who knows, okay, but I, I honestly just have a hard time believing that he actually killed her, okay, so, like, super sad that, like, after he died, his mom, like, contacted the Spongin family and tried to no avail to have Sid buried with Nancy, but Nancy was buried in a Jewish cemetery. The plot, the plots are allotted for, um, there was just no way of doing it. Um, definitely wasn't kosher, but, you know, and Beverly ended up dying in like 1996 or something like that of a drug overdose. Not surprised. Um, she was just a garbage mom and she had such a gentle son, gentle souled son, and she just subjected him to so much fuck shit from the bat that, like, he was doomed from the beginning, you know, um, and plagued based off of all of the bullshit that she confounded his life with. So now, on to our third case, takes us into a different punk scene. This one being the early 1990s Seattle punk scene that birthed such great acts as Nirvana, Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Seven Year Bitch, Pearl Jam, and many more. In 1993, lead singer of the lead singer of the Gits, Mia Zapata's senseless murder, shook Seattle. It took a decade to find out what had happened. So, let's get into it. Mia Catherine Zapata was born on August 25th, 1965, in Chicago, Illinois, but was raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Mia grew up in an affluent community and was afforded all of the best that her upbringing could afford. At the age of nine, Mia learned to play the guitar and piano. Her young ears locked in on punk rock, jazz, blues, and classical rhythm and blues singers like Billie Holiday and Sam Cooke. In 1984, Mia enrolled at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio as a liberal arts student. In September 1986, Mia and three other friends formed the punk rock group The Gits. In 1989, the band relocated to Seattle. Mia found work as a bartender and the band moved into an abandoned house they called the Rat House. Although Mia had come from everything, material things meant nothing to her, so it didn't faze her living a less-than-desirable life that bucked and balked at traditional senses and sensibilities. The band recorded and released well-received music on independent labels from 1990 to 1991, over the course of time, the Gits made a name for themselves in the local grunge punk community and uh, scene, uh, the word, often played with their friends, their friends' band, Seven Year Bitch Sidebard, I Love, 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 The Scratch by Seven Year Bitch, off of Viva Zapata. The song and band were featured in the 1995 film Mad Love, starring Drew Barrymore and Chris O'Donnell, one of my teenage favorite movies, Back to the Script. Throughout the recording of the band's second album, the band planned on embarking on a U.S. and European tour as well as many local shows. Mia was also, like, the shit 
Everybody loved Mia. Everybody knew who the fuck Mia was. She was well-known, well-respected, well-connected throughout the, you know, independent local music community scene. She absolutely was an, oh man, a, a very important thread in the tapestry that makes up that local, that local community. So, huh, they're, you know, they're recording their album, they're planning on embarking on a U.S. and European tour, as well as, like, many local shows. Record labels were trying to sign the band as well, and then the shit went left. It was about 2 a.m. on July 7th, 1993, when Mia left the Comet Tavern in the Capitol Hill area of Seattle. Studio apartment Mia had been living in in the basement of an apartment building was only a block away, and the walk was very familiar to Mia. Somewhere in between there, she was supposed to visit a friend, and it's kind of vague. But what we do know is an hour later, Mia's beaten, raped, and strangled body had been found in Seattle's Central District. It was believed that at about 2.15 a.m., Mia came into contact with her murderer. Without identification, Mia wasn't immediately identified on the scene. It wasn't until the medical examiner, who was a fan of the Gits, recognized her from the shows that were attended. According to the medical examiner, if Mia hadn't died from the strangulation, she would have died from the internal injuries sustained when she was beaten by her assailant. Mia had suffered from blunt force trauma to her abdomen and a lacerated liver. Mia's body was returned to Louisville, where the admission for her funeral was a yellow rose. Bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden helped raise $70,000 to hire a private investigator. The funds were depleted within like three years, and there were no major breaks in the case. However, the investigator did work on the case in her free time. After five years in 1998, Seattle detective Dale Tallman said, quote, We are no closer to solving the case than we were right after the murder. In 2003, Cuban refugee and fisherman Jesus Masquilla was arrested and charged with the 1993 murder of Mia Zapata based on a DNA profile extracted from saliva found on Mia's body. An original test for a match in 2001 failed to match with Masquilla, who wasn't yet in the system. However, after an arrest in 2002 for burglary and domestic abuse in Florida, his DNA was entered into CODIS. Jesus had a history of domestic abuse, burglary, and assault and battery. There was a history of reports filed against him in the past for domestic abuse and violence by girlfriends and his wife, as well as an indecent exposure on file in Seattle within two weeks of Mia's murder. There was no link between the two, and Jesus never testified in his defense. He was convicted in 2004 and sentenced initially to 37 years, which he appealed and then sentenced to, was then sentenced to 36 years. Nice job, guy. 
According to Rolling Stone magazine, Jesus died in in a Washington hospital on January 21st, 2021, at the age of 66. In the aftermath of Mia's murder, her friends created a self-defense group called Home Alive. Home Alive have organized benefit concerts featuring bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Heart, and Presidents of the United States of America. She's lost. The group instructors offered a range of courses from anger management and the use of pepper spray to the martial arts. <sighs> Wowzers. So now we're going to travel to New York to learn about the 1999 murder of hip-hop artist Lamont Coleman, a.k.a. Big L. And I'm going to take a sip of coffee real quick. Lamont Coleman was born on May 30th, 1974. He was the third and final child of Gilda Terry. And I don't know if he was like the only child of Charles Davis, but totally the only one in this house. So Charles left the family when Lamont was a young child. Lamont's older brothers belonged to another man. At the age of 12, Lamont found a love for hip-hop music and assembled a group that they named Three the Hard Way, which was comprised of Lamont, Doc Reem, and Rodney. After Rodney left, the two changed their name to Two Hard Motherfuckers. Around this time, people started to refer to Lamont as Big L. In the summer of 1990, Lamont met Bronx rapper and producer Lord Finesse, shout out to Lord Finesse, at an autograph signing and freestyle rapped for him, and then the two exchanged phone numbers. After graduating from high school in 1992, Lamont began recording various demos, some of which made it to his debut album, Lifestyles of the Poor and Dangerous. L also founded the rap group Children of the Corn, whose members were Killer Cam, aka, yeah, Cameron, Mr. Horse and Carriage, Purple Mink, Drinking Saki on a Suzaki in Osaka Bay. Yes. Murder Mace, Mr. Welcome Back, Now Who's Hot, Who's Not, and then, <laughs> and then you yell, There Go Mace, There Go Your Cuties, Why You Over Here Looking At Me. Oh, goodness gracious. Bloodshed and McGruff. In 1992, L signed to Columbia Records. In 1993, L released his first promotional single, Devil's Son, which he said he wrote because, quote, I've always been a fan of horror flicks. Plus, the things I see in Harlem are very scary. So I just put it all together in the rhyme. By 1996, L was released from Columbia Records, and in 1998 had developed his own independent label, Flamboyant Entertainment, where he was planning to distribute the kind of hip-hop that sold without 40 samples, top 40 samples, or R&B hooks. L caught the eye of Rockefeller Records CEO Damon Dame Dash after the release of Ebonics. Damon wanted to sign Lamont, but Lamont wanted his crew to be signed. On February 8, 1999, Lamont, McGruff, 
C-Town and Jay-Z began the process to sign with Rockefeller as a group called the Wolf Pack. At about 8.30 on Febu- p.m. on February 15, 1999, Lamont was shot nine times in the face and abdomen and killed at 45 West 139th Street in Harlem. Three months following the drive-by shooting, Gerard Woodley, one of Lamont's childhood friends, was arrested for the murder. A spokesman for the NYPD said that, quote, it's a good possibility it was retaliation for something Big L's brother did or Woodley believed he had done. Without reasonable evidence to hold him, Gerard was released. On June 24, 2016, Gerard was shot in the head and later died in a Harlem hospital. It was stated in Lou Black's book, Ethanol, The Rise and Fall of the 139th Street NFL Crew, that Leroy Finnessy, Lamont's oldest half-brother, was the leader of the NFL crew, which I don't know what that means, and I really don't want to Google it. Leroy allegedly met with and contracted a hitman while in prison to murder three members of the gang, the, the NFL crew. Of those targets, one of those being Gerard Woodley. Leroy allegedly asked Lamont to identify the targets to the hitman. About one week before Lamont's murder, Gerard evaded the hitman's assassination attempt. Because Lamont had been spotted multiple times with the hitman, Gerard assumed, like, like within, like, that, that weird time frame, yeah, they had been spotted together, Gerard assumed that Lamont had been a participant in the botched assassination attempt. Huh. Two months after the untimely murder of hip-hop visionary Big L, the funk and R&B community took another hit, where literally the father, the father, the father, not even the godfather, the grandfather, no, the fucking father of autotune, Roger Troutman, okay, was found murdered in an apparent murder-suicide. Roger Troutman was born on November 29, 1951, in Hamilton, Ohio. Shout out to Hamilton. I have an ex-boyfriend from Hamilton from like a million years ago. Huh. He's from that lovely little Hamlet in Ohio. And like, I never really know shit about Ohio. But like, whenever I hear Hamilton, I'm like, oh shit, I know somebody from there. Drop a clues bomb for Aaron and all. Upon his birth, Roger was the fourth of the ten Troutman children. Sidebar, I've, I've observed that the 50s were prime, like, prime time to pop out, like, family bands. The Jacksons, Jet, the DeBarges, the Osmonds, you know, just to name a few. Anywho, so Roger and his bandmates built, like, a following. And in 1977, he and his band, The Human Body, released their first single, Freedom. Within two years of the release of Freedom, Roger and his brothers were discovered by psychedelic funk forefather George Clinton, who signed the group, now renamed Zap, to his Uncle Jam Records label in 1979. The original lineup consisted of Roger, Larry, Lester, and Terry Troutman, Gregory Jackson, and Bobby Glover. A year later, the record label was forced to close down, so Zapp signed with P-Funk Uncle Bootsilla Baby, Bootsy Collins, under rubber band music t- 
to like Warner Brothers Records and released their debut self entitled self titled album Zap. This album included the banger More Bounce to the Ounce. I'm not, I don't own the music, so I'm not even gonna I mean like yo. Listen, I am who I am. I was raised by who I was raised. I I know some shit. Yay. So, from 1980 to 1985, the group released gold albums that contained more hits like Be Alright, Dance Floor, I Can Make You Dance, It Doesn't Really Matter, and my personal time traveler favorite, Computer Oh my god, I love that song. After going solo and maintaining a successful career, the mid-90s saw, like, a reemergence in the hip-hop and R&B communities were, like, opportunities for Roger to get back, you know, more front and center into the music presented themselves. <sighs> but alas, on the morning of April 25th, 1999, at about 7 a.m., Police responded to a call of shots fired in front of Roger Troutman's recording studio in Northwest Dayton, Ohio. According to doctors, 47-year-old Roger had been shot several times in the torso and died during surgery. A few blocks away from Roger's recording studio, his brother Larry was found dead inside his car with a self-inflicted bullet wound to the head. Ballistics and eyewitness accounts matched the weapon and vehicle to the murder of Roger at the hands of his brother, Larry. And it's really tragic because, like, there was never any explanation as to what pushed Larry over the edge and caused him to kill his brother and then kill himself. Uh... So I could never get into that with you guys. Um, it'll always be, similarly to Sid and Nancy, one of those unanswered questions. You know what I mean? Whew, so here we go, guys. The last case that I'm about to discuss takes us to the world of rock and roll. I never forget December 8th. How about you? Do you know what had happened to Dimebag Daryl? Daryl Lance Abbott was born August 20th, 1966 in Ennis, Texas, the second son to Carolyn and country producer Jerry Abbott. Daryl's older brother, Vinnie Paul, was born two years prior. The Abbotts divorced in 1979. After the divorce, the boys stayed with their mother, Carolyn, in Arlington, where she supported and encouraged her son's musical interests. Daryl first took up guitar at the age of 12, his first being a Les Paul Hondo he received along with an amp for his birthday. Daryl's musical influences were Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, and Van Halen. Bedecked in Ace Farley-style makeup, young Daryl would practice in front of his bedroom mirror. Jerry learned Kiss songs on guitar in order to teach Daryl how to play them. Super good dad, yo. Like, mm, Jerry, we fucking love you. You're the best. Like, hold on, let me hit you with some echo. Jerry. Jerry. That's, like, super dope. I really love it when parents, like, encourage stuff like that. That's, like, amazing. I also need a sip of coffee. Hold on a second, guys. 
Daryl was also able to learn from country musicians such as Bugs Henderson, who recorded recorded blah, 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 who recorded in Jerry's studio. Vinny had been playing drums since before little brother Daryl picked up his first Les Paul. Daryl had previously tried to learn to play drums. Vinny saying, quote, I just got better than him and wouldn't let him play them anymore. <laughs> The Abbott Brothers' first garage jam session being a six-hour rendition of Smoke on the Water. <laughs> I love that song. I swear. Like, I've judged some shit, and whenever a school band comes out playing Smoke on the Water, take my money, bitches. Take my money, take my vote. Mm. Anyways. At age 14, Daryl entered a guitar contest at the Agora Ballroom in Dallas. Daryl blew everyone away and won the contest. Daryl won more competitions in the Dallas area and eventually was asked to stop competing and instead become a judge so others had an opportunity to win. And (laughs) that's how you know you're like bound for greatness. They're like, hold up, bitch. You're winning all the awards. You can't win all the trophies. Let other people win. Why don't you judge them? So, in 1981, the band Pantera was formed. Vinny and high school classmates, guitarist Terry Glaze, bassist Tommy Bradford, and vocalist Donnie Hart were, like, in the group. Vinny accepted the invitation under the condition that Daryl be invited to join the band as well. The others were apprehensive, as Daryl was younger, scrawny, and couldn't play very well, but they ultimately agreed. In 1989, Daryl made the same request when Dave Mustaine asked him to join Megadeth. Because drummer Nick Menza had already been recruited, the band would not hire Vinny, and Daryl decided to remain with Pantera. But, in 1982, Donnie Hart left the band and was replaced by Terry Glaze on vocals, and Rex Brown replaced Tommy Bradford on bass. Daryl, who originally shared lead guitar, now assumed permanent lead guitarist. Terry Glaze said that Daryl, quote, morphed over a six-month period. When he came out, he could play like Eruption and Crazy Train. At this time, Daryl assumed the stage name of Diamond Daryl as a nod to the Kiss song Black Diamond. Their early band days under the influence of the bands that they looked up to. Pantera was originally like a glam rock band. Members were very image conscious, wearing like spandex pants, makeup, overly aquanetted locks. But... Around 1984-85, the Abbott brothers began listening to acts like Metallica and Slayer. Terry Glaze initially wasn't pleased with the band's transition towards harder, heavier metal. In 1986, Terry was replaced by Phil Anselmo. In 1990, Cowboys from Hell was released, introducing the band's signature groove metal sound. So fucking hot. Like, have you ever listened to Cowboys from Hell? You should really listen to it if you haven't. So fucking hot. Anyways, groove metal. Who would have thunk it, right? I would have known it. But, 
Daryl's transformation from, like, glam rock, that look was fully, you know, conceived after the, uh, and it was going to be carried on for the rest of his life by the time Vulgar Display of Power was released. A dyed goatee, razor blade pendant as a nod to Judas Priest's British steel, cargo shorts, and sleeveless shirt made up the Dimebag Daryl uh, uniform for the rest of his career, for the rest of his life. Diamond Daryl no longer fit either, so he changed his moniker to Dimebag Daryl, a reference coined by Phil Anselmo because Daryl refused to accept any more than a dime bag's worth of marijuana, even if it was free, because he didn't want to be caught with the drug on his person. Smart man. <sighs> Throughout the years, the band continued to make music and tour. There were a lot of ups and downs and, like, addiction problems amongst the members of the band. Oh, on um, September 12th, 1999, after six, after being diagnosed with lung cancer six weeks earlier, the Abbott brothers lost their beloved mother, Carolyn, which deeply affected them. The band was in Ireland, ready to begin their European tour on September 11th, 2001, when the attacks on the World Trade Center occurred. The band chose to cancel the tour, returning to Texas on a short hiatus. The Abbott brothers thought that the band would regroup in 2003 after the tours supporting the side projects that Phil Anselmo and Rex Brown were doing ended, only to learn that Phil had recorded a second album and Rex was not planning on returning to the group. So... Knowing that they were going to be, like, dealing with a bunch of legal bullshit that they didn't want to deal with anymore, the Abbott brothers worked on other projects and formed a new band called Damage Plan with Patrick Lockman of Halford on vocals and Bob Kakaha on bass. The Abbots also performed shows as Gasoline each New Year's Eve, covering Ted Nugent and Pat Travers, as well as some originally composed Gasoline songs like Get Drunk Now, and This Ain't a Beer Belly, It's a Gas Tank for My Love Machine. That sounds like a Bloodhound Gang song. Okay, that's what's up. Anyways, a lap dance is almost better. On the first cry. On December 8th, 2004, Damage Plan was performing at the El Rosa Villa Nightclub in Columbus, Ohio. When super, god damn it, dumpster juice alert. When dumpster juice fan Nathan Gale rushed onto the stage as the band began playing the first song in their set, like literally, like we're literally just like this isn't even a tune-up now. We're just now starting. Nathan shot Daryl several times with a Beretta 92FS, which is a 9mm semi-automatic pistol. Jeffrey Mayhem Thompson, Mayhem is his nickname, head of Damage Plan Security, then tackled Nathan Gale, only to be fatally shot in the struggle. Fan Nathan Bray was also killed as he attempted to aid critically wounded Daryl as 
like was nightclub employee Aaron Hawk, who attempted to disarm Nathan Gale as he reloaded his pistol. Three other patrons were wounded before down mother image Columbus police officer James uh, Nygmire entered the building and shot Nathan Gale in the head with a 12-gauge Remington Model 870. 38-year-old Daryl Abbott was pronounced dead at the scene. At his funeral, Daryl was ushered off in a kiss casket, that's casket with a K, bitches, donated by Gene Simmons. A few weeks before his death, Daryl had the opportunity to meet up with Eddie Van Halen. He asked for a replica of Eddie's Bumblebee guitar featured on the back cover of Van Halen 2. At the funeral, oh guys, I'm going to cry, Eddie placed his original Bumblebee guitar in the casket with a K, saying, quote, Dime was an original, and only an original deserves the original. The funeral was attended by thousands of fans and musical artists like Eddie Van Halen, Jerry Cantrell, and Dino Cazares were in attendance. Daryl was laid to rest beside his mother, Carolyn, in Arlington. In 2018, Vinnie Paul was also laid to rest next to his mother and brother in a kiss casket. In 2020, a protective fence was placed around their grave sites in an effort to stop the vandalism that had been occurring since the death of Daryl. Whew! So, what had happened is this. I gave you mm, roughly an hour and 15 minutes of true crime stories. Six to be... 110% on the uh, level of keeping track of things. I gave you six stories. And so now I'm going to give you a quick Kimberly wrap up for each. What had happened with Spade Cooley is Spade Cooley was batshit fucking crazy. And when I say batshit fucking crazy, I mean that he was... There's nothing wrong with... I mean, okay. Depends on who you are. There's nothing wrong with being a philander or philanderer or whatever, but when you are a serial philanderer who jumps from person to person to person and then you employ gaslighting and then physical harm and locking people away and keep hindering them from, you know, existing outside of the confines of the cell that you give them, uh, which would be that ranch in Mojave, separating her away from civilization, so to speak, while everybody else was in Los Angeles. She was stuck in the goddamn desert with those fucking babies. Not the same that fuck the babies, but you know what I mean? Like, he literally, like, was, like, living a, living a separate life. There's no telling what the fuck was going on in Los Angeles. There's that, okay? And then to brutalize his wife in the manner in which he did because he couldn't accept the he was one of those if I can't have you no one else can have you people because she was a possession and so that's why Spade Cooley was all for overall a piece of fucking shit then to make his daughter Melody watch as he you know 
delivered the death blow to her mother and threatened her and made her see any of that fucking dumpster juice. Ew. Ew, ew, ew. Okay. Nancy Spungen. As I told you before, I was never going to talk bad about her as, you know, the villainized girlfriend who brought down Sid and who was probably the demise of the Sex Pistols. No, she was a deeply disturbed young woman who had a lot of issues, who got with a deeply disturbed man who had a lot of issues, and then together they were deeply disturbed together with their codependent issues, and something happened, and the only other person that was in the room was incapacitated. So there's that. Okay, so then Mia Zapata. Mia Zapata is a super tragic case to me because it was like, you know, she was such a free spirit. She was such a a beacon within the local music community that she was a part of. And, you know, she had her career ahead of her and her life ahead of her. And to have it snuffed out senselessly by a piece of shit, a piece of shit, just a piece of fucking shit, who had a history of domestic violence and all this other stuff, you know, just random. It was a random act of fucking violence and it was senseless as fuck. Okay? All of it. All of it. And But I'm so happy that there was resolve, even if it took a decade to get there. Okay? DNA never lies, motherfuckers. You're not gonna get away with shit. So just give it up. Okay? Just give it up. Alright? You got great, great, grand nephews snitching inadvertently by doing 23 and me, and then the next thing you know, you find the fucking Golden State Killer. So, whatever. Just give up the ghost, bros. Just don't do dirty shit. Just stop. Okay? Science is catching up with you fucks. <sighs> Big L. Yeah, that was super sad, too. Because, again, he was at the precipice of his career. He was about to do some big things. We recognize some of the names. Lord, You know, I know who Lord Finesse is. I absolutely know who Cameron is. <laughs> killer come, come, killer come, come, killer. Yeah, when I worked... Uh, when I worked for an airline many, many moons ago, one of my girlfriends at the airline dated him. So it was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, we knew Cameron, Jay-Z, Dame Dash, Rockefeller Records, uh, Mace, who ended up signing with Bad Boy and was, you know Mace from, you know, the Biggie Smalls, Mo Money, Mo Problems, and... Uh, been around the world and stuff like that. So, that's me. So, it was interesting that this all could have potentially been avoided, but also interesting that his legacy has been tainted because of something that could have potentially been set in motion because of his older brother. Like, while his older brother was doing grimy street shit, Lamont was, like, making his own mark in the world, in the music world, in the world of hip-hop, for the culture, for the community, 
you know, putting Harlem on the map, Harlem world, putting Harlem, Jim Jones, putting Harlem on the map, you know what I mean? And then to potentially have been involved, even if it was low-key just pointing somebody out, unbeknownst to him, or even if it wasn't known, um, yeah, it's really fucked up. And, yeah, Roger Troutman, that one really bugs me again, because it was a murder-suicide, really didn't know, because there was no suicide note, but didn't know what the cause and effect of all of that was, didn't know why that happened, so, eh, just tragic, I loved, I loved listening to their music growing up. You know, I still listen to their music. Just really tragic that, you know, the father of auto-tune was, you know, snuffed out by his brother. Kind of Cain and Abel-ish. Um, and finally moving on to Dimebag Daryl. I loved, love, love how close the Abbott family was. I hate, hate, hate how senseless Daryl's death was. Period. Period. Because, like, where where was that shit necessary? Where was it necessary? It wasn't. It wasn't at all. Like, have you listened to the lyrics to any of the Pantera songs? Like, where was that? Where was that? Where was that warranted? Did were you were you listening to Damage Plans musical content? Where was this hatred towards this man like coming from what was your problem bro what had happened well we'll never know because you know a real down police officer came in and shut down that reign of terror in that nightclub you know it's tragic that lives plural more than one life was lost in that tragedy okay um, it, it's, as a, as a lover of music and a person who, like, goes to concerts quite often, it actually makes me fucking sick to think of somebody coming in and the, the aesthetic, the vibe that I'm there for gets flipped upside down in a matter of moments. We've seen this in nightclub situations, we've seen this you know, in concerts, we've seen this time and time again as well, um, it's pandemonium, it's horrible, deplorable, just ugly, repugnant shit, whew, well, so, without it being all said, I hope that you guys enjoyed this extendo clip of what had happened to True Crime Podcast, you know, perhaps you're listening to this while you're prepping your Thanksgiving meal, hopefully while the children are not in earshot, for the next hour, 20-something minutes. And you're living your best life. And you're being best and staying out of trouble. And staying, you know, just good folks. I'll come back to you with another lesser-known true crime story. Like, here in the near future. So, like, literally, like, next week. Because, notable mention, I was gonna add Nipsey Hustle to this. But this would have ended up being, like, a two-hour episode. And you can't get this sexy voice for any longer than 
an hour and a half before I start roundly rejecting all of the conversing that we're doing. So now let me roll that beautiful outro music for you, and I'll see you guys next week with another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast.